Um, a couple of three months ago when I knew Steve and Ambika were going to be going on this trip, um, they, Steve asked me if I would like to teach, and I said, absolutely, not knowing what I would like to teach on. And so I started thinking, well, we're getting towards Christmas, and so maybe it would be a good time to have a Christmas message. And I no, I don't want to do that. It's too far in front of Christmas. So then I started thinking about something that I've had in my files for quite a while, and uh, it was a study that I had put together some time ago but never had a chance to teach on. And I thought this might be a great opportunity to do that uh, because as we look forward to celebrating Christmas, you know, I, I hope that through the season it'll be more about trees and gifts and lights and glitter and food and friends, but about the one who came into this world that we celebrate at Christmas, that to live and to die, to express and expose the very nature of God for the sake of those who would put their faith in him. So I started thinking about that and started thinking, you know, I have a study that I did in the I am's of Christ, the seven I am's in John. And I thought, you know what? I think during this time of the Christmas season, we need to focus in on why we celebrate the season. Why every year on the 25th of December do we get together and and decorate our houses and you see more religiousness in this time of the year than you do any other time of the year. But a lot of times it's focused in the wrong places. So what I really want to do this morning is I want to expose you to the I am. I want you to see Christ as who he really is, truly is. So that when we do go to this time of the year, that we're a little bit more mindful of why we celebrate the 25th of December. From Genesis to Revelation, the greatest statement, I am, has been written as one of the central themes of God's holy word. In the book of Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, Christ says that he came into this world, and Abraham in a vision, saying, fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophetic book, I just want to read a couple of these to highlight who God is. Isaiah 43.11 says, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44.6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no other God. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. And the final such claim in the Old Testament is found in Malachi 3.6. Many of us remember this verse, I am the Lord, I change not. He is the great I am, the self-existent God. And we must remember always that our own personal Savior and Lord Jesus Christ has revealed to us that He Himself is that same great I am. Looking at each gospel and seeing how God reveals himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are four characteristics that each gospel contains. In the book of Matthew, we see Jesus as King and Messiah. Matthew exposes his majesty. In the gospel of Mark, we see Jesus as a servant which exposes his humility. In Luke's gospel, the common theme here is the Son of Man, which is 
his humanity. And here in the Gospel of John, we are witness to Jesus as the Son of God, which he relates to himself. And now Jesus is going to reveal his true identity once again. So there would be no mistake of who he really is and always has been. John writes of his deity. One of the things that we have to be reminded of, and I've taught on this before, is in Matthew chapter 16. We know this well when Jesus has his apostles together and he's asking them, well, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. But he says, but who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter gives the proper reply. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And to that, Jesus answers and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. At the end of the next week, some of us will be faced with that same question. My hope and prayer is that through this study, that you will make that decision. Not because of what I say, or what you hear, but about what God's Word says and has established. Established in the seven proclamations of the I Am's. My hope is that there will be no mistaken identity of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that Your Word is true as much today as it was then, as it was established. Lord, help us see in these next few moments truly who you are so that there would be no question in anybody's mind. And at the end, Father, we will know you even more than we do now. And we thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Gospel of John portrays Jesus as the God of the Old Testament is seen most predominantly in the seven I am statements. He is the bread of life, John 6.35, provided by God to feed the souls of his people, just as he provided manna from heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus 16. Jesus is the light of the world, the same light that God promised to his people in the Old Testament, Isaiah 30. And 60 in the one I read this morning, and which will find its culmination in the New Jerusalem when Christ the Lamb will be its light in Revelation 21. Two of the I Am statements refer to Jesus as both the Good Shepherd and the Door of the Sheep. And here are clear references to Jesus as the Good, the God of the Old Testament, the Shepherd of Israel, and as the Door into the Sheepfold, which is the only way to salvation. The Jews believed in the resurrection and in fact used the doctrine to try to trick Jesus into making statements that could use, they could use against him. But his statement at the tomb of Lazarus, I am the resurrection of the life, must have astonished them. He was claiming to be the cause of the resurrection and in possession of the power of life and death. 
No other than God himself could make such a claim. Jesus also claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life in John 14 linked him unmistakably to the Old Testament. He is the way of holiness, prophesied in Isaiah 35. He established the city of truth in Zechariah 8. He was in Jerusalem and preached the truths of the gospel as the life. And Jesus affirms his deity, the creator of life, in John 1, 1 through 3. And finally, as the true vine in John 15, Jesus identifies himself with the nation of Israel who are called the vineyard of the Lord. And as the true vine of the vineyard of Israel, he portrays himself as the Lord of the true Israel. However, at the end of God's holy book in the book of Revelation, there are also seven I am statements. You should have them there in front of you. So we start out the book with the great I am's and we end up with the book of the great I am's. My hope is that within the next two weeks that we will be nourished by the bread of life, that the light of the world would give us understanding, that we would rest in knowing that we are secured by the gate of his hand, that we would hear the calling and know the shepherd's voice, that we would live in the newness of the resurrected life, that we'd walk in the way and the truth and the life, and that we would remain connected to the vine of glory. Amen. Many years ago, I was talking because I wanted to use a personal application. I had to go back 45 years. And I thought to myself, 45 years ago, my gosh, I was 17 years old. But it was such an incredible experience that it stuck with me all these years. Well, there was four of us, and we were in a van, a van that had no windows. A friend of mine had bought this new Chevy van. So we decided to go to the Sonoma Raceway to watch the races. Well, we left early in the morning. We went to the raceway. And man, what a great time. If you're a race fan and you like cars and, you know, the sound and the smells and everything, it was a great place to be. So we were there all day long. It was hot. Well, about 2 o'clock or so, we were getting tired, so we thought, well, we better just head home. It takes a while. Well, as we're driving along the freeway, my friend taps me as I'm sitting in the passenger and says, hey, Ken, I just saw a CHP across the way. He just turned around. He's got his lights on. He drove across the freeway. He's got his lights on. So we're going, okay, well, we're doing the speed limit. We're not doing anything wrong. All of a sudden, sheriff's car, boom, he's making a U-turn. What, maybe they must be going over somebody else. The guy can't be us, right? All of a sudden, there's a, a line of police going around, coming, and all of them got the lights on, and they're not slowing down. They're getting right behind us. So we said, you know, we better pull over. Obviously, when you have 10 police uh, cars behind you, you should do the right thing. <laughs> so we pulled over. Now, we expected to pull our license out and all that kind of stuff. Well, that wasn't the case. The police got out of his car, the front one was CHP, opened his door, got down behind his door with his gun drawn and said, get out of the car with your hands on your head. And I'm looking at my friend Tim and I'm going, there's got to be, a, you know, this, this is, something's wrong. We weren't speeding, something's got to be wrong. Get out of the car. Hey, you know what? We better, we better obey, right? 
Now, this is going back 45 years ago when you respected the policeman. We got out of the car with our hands on, the, on our head. The two of us, there was two more that were in the van part, but you couldn't see it. We told them, there's two more. <laughs> Open the door. Tell them to come out. We did. They came out. So here's four of us standing on the freeway with our hands on our heads. Now they come up. Don't move. Get on the ground. Put your hands to the side. So we did. Right? Well, then after they came, they checked us all. We didn't have anything on us, obviously. He then separated us about 25 yards apiece. And these people are driving by. You know how embarrassing that is? To see these people going by and going, oh, look at those guys. I've done it myself. Now I'm part of that. Well, what had happened was there was a robbery. And there was a robbery in Vallejo. Now, I'm not too smart on directions at the time. I saw a sign that said Vallejo. So when the policeman said, did you go through Vallejo? I said, yes, we did. We weren't even anywhere close. All the other three said, no, sir, we never did. But this one guy said that he did. Something's not right here. So we were out there for over an hour. And finally, one of them got a call, said, okay, you guys are free to go. <laughs> okay, what went on? So, well, there, there was a robbery, but there was a, a female involved. And obviously, there's not a female here, and the van was black, not dark blue. Oh, man. You talk about a case of mistaken identity. That was a big one. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced being accused of something you didn't do or being recognized for somebody you're not. We have a similar situation here with Christ. You see, he's testifying of who he is. But the Pharisees and the religious people at the time are going, no, you're not. You're not that person. Jesus says, well, I'm going to prove it to you. These seven vivid proclamations John spends nine chapters from chapter 6 through chapter 15 indicating that Jesus was not only making God present but in fact is claiming to be God himself. He is speaking of God because he is God. He is the same I am in Exodus 3 that John is experiencing and expressing here and writing about. So let's all turn to chapter 6 and look at our first one. Chapter 6, we'll start in verse 22. As I read through this, I want you to notice how many times that I and me are repeated. Chapter, 20, or chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near, near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, 
but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I say, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing God's work? And Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent, who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Now watch this. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never first. 38. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the will of he who sent me. Verse 41. So when the Jews grumbled about him, because he said he was the bread of life, come down from heaven, they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, for I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna, In the wilderness, and they died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that you may eat and never die. I am the living bread come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. You see how Jesus changed. They were talking about manna from heaven, and all of a sudden Jesus says, okay, I can can talk about that, because I truly am the bread from heaven. In the morning, the crowd whom Jesus fed began to search for him. And it takes him a while to realize that he's no longer nearby. They sent out to Capernaum in search of him. And not long afterward, Jesus is spotted. A crowd gathers around him once more, if not to hear him teach, but to have him perform some type of miracle or some type of healing. In our text, the people who witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 find Jesus and challenged him to be their breadwinner forever by providing them with bread. And like Moses did, Jesus declines to grant the request. But instead he offers them better bread and he makes it clear to them in doing so that he is better than Moses. Jesus is certainly better than Moses, but he is also one like Moses. Moses led the people through the midst of the Red Sea. Jesus just crossed over to Capernaum by walking on the sea. If we go back and look at the chapter. After the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, God provided them with manna to eat. Jesus fed the 5,000 in the wilderness across the Sea of Galilee. Even better, he offers men 
a bread that gives eternal life. And it wasn't long after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, you remember, they started to grumble. In chapter 5, our Lord was rejected by the Jewish religious leaders for healing a man on the Sabbath, for commanding a man to carry his bed on the Sabbath, and especially for claiming to be equal with God. Now, the Jewish leaders are more committed than ever to get rid of Jesus. You know what the word manna means? What is it? Exactly. The religious people at that time were not saying, what is it, but who is he? When I think of bread, when you think of bread, there's unlimited varieties that may come to our mind. Bread that we have a favorite of. One of my favorites is Dutch Crunch. When that first came out, I thought, that's it, I won't eat anything else. We also have somebody who religiously and graciously makes forgotcha every week for us, Rosa, which brings me back to my childhood, which I love. But cruising the net, I found out that there are more than 200 types of bread, and in those types, there's variations of it. And similar to the many belief systems and concepts we have of God that exist today, a quick search Search shows that there's approximately 4,200 religious beliefs in this world. 4,200. Amazing that back then there probably was a handful of belief systems. And look where we are today. In contrast, the Mediterranean world of Jesus' day, bread was the most important basic part of the diet. If you had bread and water or a little wine, you had a meal. If you had an addition of some fish or meat or a slice of cheese or a few dates, you were eating well. The grains of the Middle East mainly were wheat and barley, and they were used to make the bread. In the East, rice was, rice was used and was the equivalent and could be cooked quickly. But the bread that we had in the Middle East was baked flat, maybe about an inch thick, and they were very wide loaves. And the bread represented the sustenance of life, but only temporarily. The significance is that Jesus equates himself as the sustainer of spiritual life eternally. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he was not saying, I'm like a fresh break loaf of bread from Baker's Delight. But he was saying, I am the only one who can really nourish you along life's journey. For I am the only bread that can give you eternal life. All the Gospels tell of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish. But let also remember that in those days, only the men of a certain age were counted. So there could have been upwards of fifteen to 20,000 people that Jesus performed this miracle. And here in John's gospel, we have a long account of what took place subsequent to this and what Jesus said by way of explanation. And John tells us in our narrative. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he says, whoever comes to me will never be hungry. 
who believes in me will never be thirsty. It is clear that Jesus is speaking figuratively, but speaking of himself. The bread Jesus offers gives eternal life and quenches spiritual hunger. It does not relieve physical hunger or thirst because they are temporary. Also, Jesus does not say, come to church each week and you will get the bread of life. Go out and work for the poor and needy and you will earn the bread of life. Or even believing in God will give you the bread of life. And Jesus said that he is the bread of life. He gives that life to those who believe. Everything we have is a gift from God, including our material blessings. However, Jesus is teaching constantly and reminds us that there is something more important than money, our home, cars, holidays, relationships. You can make your own list. God revealed in Jesus and made present through the Holy Spirit that he is the one who can give this bread. This is the only bread that can sustain us along life's journey and prepare us for what's to come. As bread is necessary for daily food, so daily communication with Christ is necessary for spiritual growth. To a child, bread is necessary for growth. To adults, it's necessary for strength. So to feast upon Christ is necessary for both. And being in daily communication with Him is essential to spiritual health. Listen one more time to what Jesus says. Do not work for food that perishes, but food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And we're reminded in Matthew 4, chapter 4, verse 4, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second I am is in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, starting in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, If I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now let's go to chapter 9. 
And this is the story of the blind man that Jesus encounters. As he went along the way, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is born blind? And Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, put it on the man's eyes, and he told him to go wash. So the man went and washed. And we know the rest of that story. But the amazing part is found all the way down in verse 35. Jesus had heard that the man, they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? He asked. Tell me so that I might believe. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Wow. You talk about the light opening eyes. Most of us in this room have experienced that in our own lives when we came to salvation in Christ. When all of a sudden, when somebody was explaining to us what we've heard somewhere along the line, the light went on. And we went, whoa, I get it. I understand it. Have you ever been sharing with somebody, a family member, a friend, and you can tell by looking at them that they're starting to understand? God is removing that blindness, not necessarily from their eyes, but from their heart, from their soul. They're recognizing that they've been living in darkness, and God is shedding light on the darkness. One of the things I came across, hopefully I can find it because I really, I really like what it said. Probably not here. One of the things, I, if I can remember off the top of my head, oh, here it is. This is, this is really amazing. It says, I'm not sure where I heard this, but, I have, but have you ever heard this uh, little story? Have you ever been in a country where it's really dark, there's no city lights out? I mean, it's pitch dark outside and all you see is stars sometimes you can't even see the trees across the street or cars or whatever because all the lights are dim it's gone it's just darkness and all there is is sunlight maybe the moon so get that in your mind and someone once said that all that you see when you see the stars shining through the dark darkness is their tiny pinholes in heaven's floor that God's glory is shining through. I thought that was pretty cool because you know what? We couldn't, we couldn't see all of God's glory, but we see little pieces of it in the stars. I know that's just a, a story, but it's a good visual for me anyway of God piercing the darkness. Also, darkness has a negative connotation. How many of us, when we were growing up as little kids, were afraid of the dark? I know I was. I used to wake up in the middle of the night, and I'd yell, Dad, Dad. 
I have to get up and go to the bathroom. But I couldn't get up until he turned the light on. Because in my mind, walking in the darkness was scary. So for a period of time, I was young, probably about 14, that I just, <laughs> I just, just seeing if you're awake. When I was younger, that's how I did it. But, you know, when you are in that place and it's dark and you're afraid, it keeps you from moving sometimes. You're unsure of what's in front of you because you can't see. It's the same way spiritually, only we don't see it until somebody sheds light on it. Then all of a sudden we see it. Each one of us are born in darkness. We live in darkness. We look at the light outside, the lights in this room, the sun and all that, but our hearts are still dark. It's not until Christ sheds that light on us that we get that understanding. John opens his gospel this way. John chapter 1 We know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Here they're talking about John the Baptist. The true light that gives light to everyone who who was coming into this world. He was in the world and through the world was made through him. The world did not recognize him, but he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He came to the Jewish nation first, but they did not receive him. So he opened the door to the Gentile world, shed that same light so that you and I could have that light in our life. There's two times Jesus says he is the light in chapter 8, verse 12, and again in chapter 9, verse 5. But they're very different. In the first reference, Jesus is teaching in the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. On the first day of the feast, there was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple that involved the lighting of four large candelabras, the seven-fold candelabras, by the priest and each person present, lighting their own candles. The Jewish writings from that time tell us that these candles produced so much light that it pierced the darkness of the city of Jerusalem, lighting up every street and every home. And on the last day of the feast, there were no lit candles. Thus, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The temple was dark in the city when he said this. Jesus is speaking to us today 
telling us that he is that light. But maybe you're still having trouble. So in chapter 9, he talks about a blind man who he gives sight to. He says, I am the light of the world in verse 5. He says, these words are found in the context of healing a man born blind as we were reading. Giving sight to a man who had been born blind was truly a supernatural miracle. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, think of the things involved. He has to create new tissue, new nerves, blood vessels, giving the brain the ability to interpret what he's seeing. Sounds pretty complex. But only God can do that sort of miracle. However, John's account of this miracle definitely could be a sermon on its own. But today, we look beyond that. The answer is seen in the culmination of the story when Jesus calls on the man who has been healed to believe in him. And Jesus says to him, I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And the man shows that physical healing was amazing. But what he says is even greater when he says, I believe. You see, the physical miracle was beyond his understanding, but in this dark world, breaking spiritual blindness is the greatest of all miracles. Wouldn't you agree? Only the grace of God can give sight to the blind, and only the touch of Christ can lead to faith. Only by his truth can any of us be healed. One testimony that we have written is in the book of Acts by one of the men who wrote most of the New Testament. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 and 5 says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Darkness can definitely make us uncertain and fearful. We may feel hopelessness, lonely. And to say someone is walking walking in darkness means that they have lost their way somehow. They may be moving along, but it's an unsure path they're walking. In contrast, to say somebody is walking in the light means they know where they are going. They're moving forward with confidence, direction, certainty. Light and darkness are powerful symbolic images. However, Jesus takes these powerful symbolic terms and uses them to speak of himself in this ministry. He came to dispel the darkness of sin and offer the light of eternal life. To all of us here today, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we have the bread of life. I am the bread. We have the light. I am the light. And third third in John chapter 10, we have the gate. To me, this was the most interesting part of the study that I was going through because I I didn't know much about what the gate meant or the door as some translations say talk about so this is I'm combining this with I am the good shepherd 
because they work in tandem together, obviously. We have the gate to the sheepfold and we have the shepherd. But before we get to the shepherd, we have to go through the gate. So John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of the stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. However, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. In these 10 verses, we read the door of the gate four different times. We read truly, truly twice. So this little section of scripture is extremely important. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the door? The proclamation found here in John 10, 7 is the third of the seven I am's. These I am proclamations point to his unique divine identity and purpose. In this I am statement, Jesus purposely points out for us the exclusive nature of salvation by saying that he is the door, not a door. Furthermore, Jesus is not only our shepherd who leads us into the sheepfold, but he is the only door by which we may be entered and be saved. Jesus is the only means we have of receiving eternal life. There is no other way. To get a more clear picture of what he's talking about, it's helpful to understand a little bit about the ancient culture, especially of the sheep and shepherding. Of all domesticated animals, sheep are the most helpless and dumb. Sheep will spend their entire day grazing and wandering from place to place and never look up. As a result, they often become lost. But sheep have no home, a homing instinct, as do other animals. I didn't know that. They are totally incapable of finding their way to the sheepfold, even when it is in plain sight. By nature, sheep are followers. If, they lead sheep, if the lead sheep steps off a cliff, the others will follow. And we are compared to sheep. So we're in that company, people. Additionally, sheep are easily susceptible to injuries and are utterly helpless against predators. If a wolf enters the pen, they won't even defend themselves. They won't even try to run or spread out. Instead, they just kind of huddle together and whoever the wolf gets, they get. If a sheep goes towards moving water, they will stop. If they fall into moving water, they will drown. However, sheep will not drink from a stream that is running. That is why we're reminded in Psalm 23, though we walk through the valley of 
death, he leads us beside still waters. Sheep are totally dependent upon the shepherd who tends them and cares and cares for them with compassion. Shepherds were the providers, the guides, the protectors, and constant companions of the sheep. So close was the bond between the shepherd and the sheep that to this day in the Middle East, shepherds can divide flocks that have mingled at a well or during the night simply by calling their sheep. But they know their shepherd's voice. Shepherds were inseparable from their flocks. The shepherd would lead the sheep to safety, places to graze, make them lie down for several hours in the shade, or else they would stay in the sun. Then as night fell, the shepherd would lead the sheep to the protection of the sheepfold. So let's take a closer look at what the sheepfold is, and that's there in your, in your outline. The first one is, what is a sheepfold? The sheepfold is a protected place. A sheepfold is where the sheep sleep for the night. It's a safe haven. Usually shepherds would bring their flocks back to the village as the sun began to set and, the pen, and pen them often with two or three other flocks. If they had taken the sheep far away, they would gather them in a cave or a gully. Or if these were not available, make a pen for them out of brush or logs. The aim was to protect the sheep throughout the night. If the sheepfold was in the village, it would usually have a strong gate or door. Through this door, the shepherd would enter in the morning to call out his sheep. However, thieves and robbers, in contrast, would climb over the fence and find another way. If the sheepfold were in the countryside, the shepherd himself would sleep across the entrance as a human door. These two kinds of sheepfolds and entrances to them are pictured as Christ is talking about. He is the gate. So picture this. You're a shepherd. You have to take care of your flock against anything. And all you have is two posts. You have to sleep in between there. And you have to protect anything that comes in with your life. Because that's what the gate is. It's the protector of the sheep's life. Secondly, my sheep hear my voice. It's a personal relationship. The intimacy between the Jewish shepherd of old and his sheep is brought to us most powerfully when Jesus says, the sheep know the shepherd's voice and they follow him. What immediately comes to mind is the relationship that he has with his sheep. And we might have that same relationship with our pet dog or cat at home. How many of us call our cat or dog, and they come. Mostly dogs, cats are a little bit finicky, but dogs are pretty loyal. When you call them, they'll come because they know our voice. But take them outside somewhere else or a whistle. They know the whistle of their person who takes care of them. But this is the kind of relationship a shepherd has with his sheep. The minute they heard his voice, their tails would wag. If they heard another's voice, doesn't matter. What this story shows is more than one flock is in the sheepfold. When the first shepherd comes to the door in the morning, he calls out his sheep. Immediately they recognize his voice and they file out. The other sheep take no notice. 
Many people recount seeing this very thing in third world countries today where shepherds still continue to care for small flocks. Our Lord is telling us that our relationship with him is to be paralleled with that of a loving, caring shepherd. And we, his disciples, are to think of ourselves like sheep that know the shepherd's voice and will follow him. It's an incredible thought. Jesus is our loving shepherd who cares for us and knows us individually, personally, and intimately. We have followed him because we have heard him call us. And hopefully when we hear his voice, we listen. Third, beware of thieves and robbers. A predicted warning. In the first century, the shepherd had to be constantly on guard for those who would steal his sheep. Often this was done by getting into the sheepfold at night by some other way than through the gate or the guarded door. And such thieves, Jesus says, will come in to steal, kill, and destroy. The welfare of the sheep is of no interest to them. The sheep do not freely follow such intruders because they don't hear the same voice that they're used to. But the thieves don't matter. They don't care. What are some of the thieves today? Maybe there are militant atheist groups of our day, the progressive philosophies, the undermining attitudes of religiosity. There are many false teachers who suggest we can save ourselves by one means or another apart from or added to Christ. They are advocates of religions that know little of forgiveness and the love of God They have little or no understanding of God's holiness and justice. And there is no such thing as grace. And there are those Christian leaders who attract their congregations' affections away from Christ to themselves and or who preach another gospel. Those are some of the thieves that we have today. They speak to our carnal minds, our selfish flesh, and our misguided emotions. There is, however, only one good shepherd, and it's his voice we should listen to. And finally, my sheep enter and leave by me. It's a promised assurance. Again, the the Christological force of Jesus' word strikes us. He is the entrance to eternal life. He feeds us. He protects us. He gives us life in all its fullness. These are things only God can do. Jesus is thus claiming both in speaking of himself as I am and in what he promises to be, God incarnate, God in human flesh, and the God who saves and sustains us. This is the true protector of our life. And we know in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from God's love. And there's a list there. So God is the great I am, the bread of life, the I am, the light of the world, the I am, the gate of the sheepfold, and the final I am is the good shepherd. This is the one that I really wanted to spend time on, and I know we're getting short but in John 10, 1 through 30, or John 10, uh, 1 through 10, Jesus speaks of the flock of sheep protected in the sheepfold, warning against rustlers. In John 
chapter 10, verses 11 through 30, Jesus talks about, I am the good shepherd and explaining how he cares for the sheep. That even he will lay down his life and give it up for the sheep. Going through all these, we will see how many times Jesus says, I lay my life down. I lay it down. I lay my life down. The good shepherd gives his life sacrificially. He shows sympathy for his sheep. And he searches and assures for the lost and those who are his. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I lay down my life. Unlike the bad shepherds who only look to destroy the sheep, the good shepherd is there willing to give his life for those sheep. Every single one of them is precious to him. And no cost is too great, even if he has to give his life. If we all really truly believe this, we would love the good shepherd almost to the same degree as he loves us. We would forever be thankful for our salvation and want to please him. That is his sacrifice. The good shepherd's sympathy. In contrast, to the good, the good shepherd knows each one of his sheep and they know him. In wonderfully assuring words, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They will follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Note that the personal pronouns in this passage, the good shepherd says, I know my sheep. The sheep know my voice. I came that they, I lay down my life with them. They follow me and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That speaks of a relationship. That's our great shepherd who has compassion for us, for the lost, because we were part of that lost. Then we have the good shepherd's assurance. As I alluded to before, nothing can snatch them out of his hand. If you're his, there is nothing that can separate us from his love. His love is sacrificial. His love is eternal. His love is personal. His love is relational. One of the things I like to hear all the time, and you're, you're aware of these verses, is Jesus is the door of invitation. Here's just a couple. It says, come is the word used often when Jesus says, come, he said to those who labor and are heavy laden. There is a promise of rest, the rest which Jesus will only give, the rest which the one who comes will find. Come, said Jesus to the rich young ruler, the invitation to take up the cross and follow him. It's open to everybody. Come, he said to Simon Peter, and took him by the hand and lifted him up so that he could walk on water. Come, you blessed of my Father, is the invitation to inherit all that the Father has in store for his children. I am the bread of life. I am the giver, the one who satisfies, who sustains, 
and who is all-sufficient. To those that are hungry and seek security, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world, the illuminator of life. I am the one in whom all hid are the treasures and wisdom of knowledge, the explainer of all things, the one who casts light upon all mysteries and solves them. To those that are spiritually blind, living in darkness, your eyes will be opened. I am the light of the world. I am your spiritual understanding. I am the door, Jesus said, that is the opportunity into this life. The open way. I am the eternal protector and provider for my sheep. To those who seek, it shall be open. I am the door of the sheep. I am your spiritual protection. And finally, I am the good shepherd. That is, the guide of life, the only one properly equipped to take an individual and safely steer them through all the problems and chasms that follow on every side of life. I can lead them safely through. And yes, I have given my life for them. To those that are lost, they will be found, they will be cared for, and they will be, built, be secured forever. For I am the good shepherd. I am your spiritual provision. This morning we looked at four of the I am statements found in John. Each one of these you could spend weeks on teaching through. There's so much. But I wanted to highlight what God spoke to me, how I looked at this, and to encourage you that even though we're faced at Christmas and people of the world celebrate this time of the year without any idea other than it's a holiday, I think we in the Christian world have gotten lax sometimes by reminding them of why we celebrate this time of the year. If that little baby born in a manger 2,000 plus years ago was the great I am that came into this world and the I am that we're talking about in the Gospel of John is that same I am. And if that same I am was in the Old Testament back as far as Genesis into Exodus, you have to see the continuity There should be no question. There should be no mistaken identity of who he is. The people in this world are a lot like those of his time. They're unwilling to give up what they have grasped in their hands. They're unwilling to give up their control. They're unwilling to give up what they may have materialistically, like the rich young ruler. It doesn't change the great I am. For what he says, I am the same today and yesterday and forever. The I am is that little baby who came into this world for the sole purpose of giving sacrifice as the shepherd on the cross so that all of us here who call on his name 
would be given that gift. Not of Christmas, but the gift of salvation through his life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this word. We thank you, Father, for the gospel. We thank you, Father, for just assuring us of who you are. So there is no question, Lord. We may not believe that this is your word. I know people of the world don't think so. But those of us here, Lord, who look to your word as the truth, the way, and the life, as we'll look at next week. Father, may we leave this place assured and encouraged that we possess the great I Am. That this Christmas season, we don't just celebrate a baby born in a manger, but Father, we celebrate the life that you gave on behalf of us to shed the light on the darkness, to protect us from those who would come to steal and destroy, and to sacrifice yourself, Lord on our behalf. Father, may we be grateful this year for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.